If you go out the doors of this building and go to the far corner and you look about knee high, there is a cement block. It's called a cornerstone. And that cornerstone has two outward facing sides to it. And on one, it lists the beginning of this congregation. On the other, it tells when the church of Jesus Christ began. That took place in approximately 33 AD. 50 days after the Passover, there was a feast called the Feast of Weeks. We sometimes call it Pentecost. And people came from all over the place back to Jerusalem for a celebration. And they were gathered in Jerusalem on that day to celebrate, but what they came to celebrate, they didn't understand. And what they ended up celebrating, they could never have imagined. I think that there are lots of celebrations like that. There's one coming up in roughly two months. This is just a heads up for you parents and especially for your grandparents. It's about to get very, very, very expensive for you. Celebrations are kind of fun though. Everybody, everybody enjoys a good celebration. Our family likes to get together for birthdays and, and uh, for, for big family events, but, but birthdays especially. And there are two birthday songs that get sung. There's the traditional one, and then there's the one that the McGee family always sings, and I'll not bore you with it now. Sometime you ask me about it, I'll be happy to sing it for you. Uh, it'll scare the wits out of you. We love to celebrate things, and that's the way it was when people came back to the, to the temple for the day of Pentecost, for the Feast of Weeks. But scarcely in their minds could they have imagined what it was going to be like by the end of the day. We're going to be talking about the beginning of what Paul calls the body of Jesus Christ. And in another place he calls the bride of Jesus Christ. And you and I call the church. Church is an interesting word. It's actually a translation of a Greek word, ekklesia, which means the assembled ones or the gathered ones, meaning folks who have come together. And that's what happens when we get together for worship, isn't it? We come from our various homes and various communities and we come together. Literally, the word means the called out ones. Meaning that somebody has issued an invitation. And we have come from our various locations to the one place where we come together. Ecclesia, ek, out of. Kaleo, to call, to call out of. Ecclesia, church. It's the word from which we get ecclesiastical. 
meaning people that have to do with the church or doctrines that have to do with the church. I know, I'm getting kind of down in the weeds. Sorry about that. I taught Bible college for 27 years. It's hard for me to get out of that frame of mind. We're going to read a rather lengthy passage of Scripture. We're going to, we're going to chunk it up. We're going to take big blocks of this second chapter and take a look at what it was that was going on. We'll make a point. I'll read a little bit. We'll talk a little bit. And then we'll move on, all right? First thing that happened was that the Spirit of God got the attention of the crowd, the people who had come together for the festival. Here's what Dr. Luke records for us. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Let's count these, okay? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. How many is that? Fifteen. Keep that in mind. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. In other words, they're drunk. I can scarcely begin to imagine what this must have been like. Twelve apostles were gathered in one place. And there came a sound like the blowing of a mighty wind. It doesn't say that there was a wind. Now that would get your attention. Never before in all of their lives had they heard special effects like this. They had never heard a violent or mighty wind without feeling a wind. That made them perk up. Why would we hear this but not feel it? And about the time their eyes were glancing around, then there appeared to be tongues of fire which separated and came to rest over each of them, meaning over each of the apostles. In other words, now we've gone from a sound that got people's attention to a sight which riveted their attention on 12 specific men. Now it doesn't say that there was fire. It says that it looked like fire. 
it appeared like fire. If it were really fire, Peter's hair would have been singed. But there wasn't fire. It just looked like it. Then these 12 men began to talk. And when they talked, oh my, oh my, oh my. These people were hearing 12 men speak, but each person who was listening heard it in his or her own native language. And we counted, there were 15 languages being spoken. Now, please, if you can explain this to me, I want you to. How is it humanly possible for 12 individuals to speak 15 languages simultaneously, each language separate and distinct? Well, it's not humanly possible. So first, you had the sound of a wind which was not there. You had what looked like flames, but wasn't really a fire. And then you have men speaking, 12 men speaking 15 languages simultaneously. And it got people's attention, and some of them began to try and come up with their own fanciful explanations for what was going on. But the one that seemed to stick was the one... Where somebody said, they've had too much wine. These guys are drunk. I don't know if you have ever been accused of being drunk when you were not drunk. My mom accused me of it a time or two because of my warped sense of humor. I'd never had a drink. But she told me I must have. So how do you explain this? Well, Peter did. Peter interpreted the events. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he talks about people in the gathering, in the church, in the called out ones who get together and worship. And he talks about gifts of the Spirit. Phenomena that don't happen ordinarily. That's what makes them miraculous. Two of them that he lists are speaking in tongues, which is what had happened here, and interpretation. And he said, if in the assembly there's someone who has a message in a tongue, that's fine, so long as there is an interpreter. Now, it's important to distinguish between an interpreter and a translator. Sometimes, in order to interpret something, there will need to be translation but that wasn't the case here, was it? Every person in this crowd of thousands had heard 12 men speak, but each person heard it in his or her own native language. They did not need a translator. Peter interpreted. He did not translate. He did not translate. 
it is my conviction that if people are are doing what this passage is talking about in speaking of uh, in other tongues there is not a need for a translator there is a need for an interpreter someone who can tell what this means what is the significance of this event Peter got up to interpret to tell people what's the significance of God getting our attention by the sound by the sight by hearing our own languages being spoken. So Peter interpreted. First, he told them what God had predicted. Listen to it. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, <clears throat> and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. That's interpretation. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. You know what he's talking about, don't you? What time is it? It's 9.39. Am I drunk? Don't answer that. It's only nine in the morning. No. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter said, this is what God predicted through Joel. In other words... This should not have come as a surprise to any of us. These people had heard the prophet Joel preached in synagogues and at the temple all their lives. Even the people from other lands. They were either Jews or converts to Judaism as we heard about some of the people who were visiting from Rome. These people were quite familiar with hearing the scriptures and they were quite familiar with not realizing what it was they'd heard Peter said God told us this was going to happen and now it's happened all of those signs in the heavens and on the earth those were all done before now why because God promised he would pour out his spirit on all people Men, women, boys, girls, old men. And now it's happened. What you have seen and heard was a fulfillment of what God said hundreds of years ago. And you've heard all your life. 
I don't know about you, but if I'd been in the crowd that day, this would have made me sit up and take notice. What's going on here? Why, why is it that God has done these things in our lifetime? Why is it that this has happened now? So Peter then turns his attention from what God had said and predicted to what God had done and what it means. Listen to this. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Sometimes, we don't realize what is true and right until somebody smacks us in the face with it. There's an interesting word that Peter uses here. In English, it's translated accredited. God accredited someone to you. Specifically, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God. Accredited means that God appointed him and put him in a position for a specific purpose. And how did he accredit him? How did he prove that he was the person that God had chosen? By miracles and signs and wonders, which God did through that man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, we're all witnesses of this. He changed water to wine. He calmed winds and waves. In these ways, God showed that Jesus of Nazareth had power over all of creation. He could remake things when it was his will to do so. He could bring order from chaos. He healed diseases. He restored sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. He made lame people walk. He helped people whose limbs were not working functionally to function properly. He raised the dead back to life. The son of the widow of Nain. Jesus' good friend, Lazarus. Raised back to life. And Peter says, we're all witnesses to these things. 
There's not a person here who has not observed or experienced something that God did through Jesus in order to show us who he was. But you know what we did with the information? We went against what God wanted. God, by his own foreknowledge, in other words, God knew what was going to happen, and by his will, he handed this Jesus of Nazareth over to you, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Peter's not done with his explanation He's not done telling people what it means. That last statement that we read is incredibly important. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. If if I was only able to get through to you about any one thing today, here it is. Here it is. Those two words, Lord and Messiah, are just so loaded with meaning. Let me take the second one first. Messiah goes right along with that word accredited. It means this is a person that God has appointed for a specific purpose. The specific purpose is to be the Savior, the liberator of all mankind. To take care of whatever was wrong and to make it right. That's what the Messiah was. It's the one that was first promised, first promised to Adam and Eve. When they sinned, God said to Satan, not to Adam and Eve, but to Satan, someone of this woman's descendants is going to set things straight. You're going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. He's going to save these people. And from that very moment, they began to look for someone. Eve, on the occasion of the birth of her first Child, her son, Cain, said, I have gotten the man from God. Boy, was she wrong. She expected that what God had promised was going to happen just like that. But that's not what God said. God said one of her descendants. He didn't say her son. So for thousands of years after that, people had been looking for the one whom God would appoint to save all of us. In all of my encounters with people, I've found lots of people who are quite willing for Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Savior, to be the Liberator. Well, it's not, it's not quite accurate. Most people are not willing to admit they've ever done anything wrong. How many of you know somebody like that? Here's the big question. How many of you are somebody like that? You're not going to be saved until you are ready to admit 
you kind of messed up. Listen, if we were so good at running our lives, we would not need a Savior. The only way to not need a Savior is to have never sinned. Sin is an intentional act. Sin is a willful disobedience to the will of God. And every one of us fits in that category. Now I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that if you want Jesus to be the Messiah for your life, He is quite happy to be the Messiah for your life. But only on one condition. And it gets to that other word, the one which came first, that He gets to be Lord. I'll give you another word that is four letters that helps us understand this a little better. Boss. Only, in this case, a person who is Lord has power over every facet of our lives. A Lord gets to determine what you do and when and how and for how long and in what way. A Lord gets to determine what you are willing to say and what you are not willing to say. What you are willing to do and what you are not willing to do. When someone becomes your Lord, you give up your free will. You want a Lord? You say you want a Savior, but you cannot have Jesus as Savior without having Jesus as Lord. Are you willing for Him to be Lord? And what got to these people, it says that Peter said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, was that in that one statement, Peter had brought everything right down to the point. God showed who Jesus was and you killed him. But God raised him and has made him Lord and Christ. Listen to me. They knew what this meant. Because what happens next is that the people asked an important question and Peter answered it. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, in other words, he, he preached a long time. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They finally realized what was going on here. And it was about more than they could handle. They believed what he said. In other words, they recognized that Peter and the apostles had been telling them exactly what was true. While you and I were not present 2,000 years ago, when stakes were driven into the wrists and into the ankles 
of Jesus of Nazareth. Even though we were not the ones who pounded the stakes. Even though we're not the ones who had jammed the crown of thorns upon his head. Or who had wielded the whip and tore open his back and his sides. No, we weren't there. But our sins are the reason that he was there. I am as guilty of the torture and the death of Jesus Christ as any of the soldiers who took part in it that day. We all are guilty. The question is a natural one for the people to have asked. And Peter's answer was so simple. Repent. That means turn around. It means turn 180 degrees, not 360. 360 means you end up going the same direction you've been going. Turn 180 degrees. If you've been heading north, head south. You've been heading east, head west. In this case, if you've been heading away from God, head toward him. Repent. Repent does not mean feel sorry. There's a component of that. Paul would write to the church at Corinth and say, Godly sorrow leads to repentance. You can be sorry and not change. You cannot repent without changing. Whatever your life of sin has been like to this point, Peter says, stop it. Peter said, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. You want your sins to be forgiven? That's the way it happens. You repent, you're baptized. Baptizine is a laundry term. It's an onomatopoetic word. Boy, now there's a, a word from your high school grammar, wasn't it? A word which sounds like the action it describes. Clap. When a gun fires, it's bang or pop or boom. Roar. It's onomatopoetic. Baptizine is an onomatopoetic word. It sounds like the action it describes. It's a laundry term. If you wanted to do laundry, you took your laundry down to the lakeside, to the riverside, to the ocean side. You would find the biggest smoothest rocks you could find. You would dip the garments in the water. You would bring them back up onto the bank. You would spread them out over one big rock and take a smaller rock and bang around in it to loosen up the dirt. Then, now you have this garment which not only still has some dirt in it, but now it's got the grit from the two rocks banging against each other. And so you have to get rid of it. So you take it back down to the water and you slap it down onto the surface. And as the cloth goes under, an air bubble forms beneath the cloth. And as it comes up, it makes a sound. Bopped. 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 You ever throw a big rock in a pond? What sound does it make? Bopped. If something is baptized... It's plunged. You don't get baptized by sprinkling. 
The Greek word for that, which is used in other places in the scriptures for other things, is called rontizo. It's the sound of the falling rain. Rontizo. And it's not pouring. That's an entirely other word. To be baptized is to be plunged. Now listen to me. In former days, someone may have sprinkled you. Someone may have poured water on you. And they meant well. They just weren't accurate. The only way to be baptized, baptized, is to be plunged. Peter says, repent and be plunged for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, your sins are going to be forgiven. So what are we going to do with this? What's this mean for us? Question number one. Do you believe what Peter said? Now, I cannot answer that for you. Believe me, I'd like to. I wish that it was valid for me to force you to believe, but I can't. Your faith is your own. If you don't believe, Peter, you don't have to do anything. I wouldn't want to be in your shoes if that's the way you are, but you're free to not believe. Second, if you believe, are you willing to obey God by following Peter's instructions? Are you willing to turn away from your sin and turn toward God? Are you willing to be baptized so that your sins may be washed away? If so, then you can receive the same benefits that 3,000 people that day received. Not the whole crowd. Most of the crowd was not obedient. Most of the crowd did not accept the message. They heard it. They may have believed it, but they didn't do what was required. They did not repent. They were not baptized. And they left in their same sins and condemnation as they had arrived that morning. Do you believe? Are you willing to repent and to be baptized? If so, then you can have the same benefits. Your sins will be forgiven. And God's Spirit will be given to you to live within you so that He can teach you the truth about all things and so that He can empower you to live the kind of life that God wants you to live. You've died to sin at that point. How can you live in it any longer? That's what Paul says in Romans 6. You have questions to answer. And it's time to answer them. You cannot leave here today without making a choice. You can't. You will either choose to be obedient or you will choose to be disobedient. You will either choose the benefits or you will accept the curses. Oh, I hope you believe. I hope you repent. I hope you're baptized. Let's pray.